Please be seated. Welcome to Christ the King. This has been a heavy week. Imagine that your heart is in heaviness as the psalmist describes. For many this weekend, the heaviness comes from remembering and honoring the lives of those lost serving our country. Sons, daughters, friends, family, servicemen and women that some of you may have served alongside. Lord have mercy. For others, I think especially heavy is the horrific attack that took lives of 19 children and two teachers this week. Christ have mercy. Texas, Buffalo, California. The list goes on. This week, Alexandria. The tragic death of a local high schooler, Luis Hernandez. Lord, have mercy. All of these tragedies rightfully bring us to a place of grief, a place of lament, a place of anger, a place of fear. I expect you've felt many of those things this week. They make us cry out against the evils that we see in our world. Gun violence, racism, the devastating impact of mental illness and those the most vulnerable whose cares and basic needs are not cared for with compassion. Honestly, they make it hard to relate to the, the alleluia that we read here in Revelation today. They make it hard to have hope. But as Christians, we are called to prayer and to action and to have hope. Sometimes it seems like the songs that we sing are discordant with the reality around us, like the song that we sang as our song of praise, a song rejoicing in a time when there will be no tears. The hope we have as Christians is that there is more to God's story than the tragedy that we experience. And in our reading today from Revelation 19, God gives a vision that begins with two words of hope. Look down at your reading on page three of your service leaflet. After this, this is God's promise to us, that there is an after this, that there is hope that comes after the evils of our present age, that while we experience heartache now, there is an after this. And we need that vision of hope. We need the hope that God holds out to John. It's a hopeful vision of a multitude that God saves as we grieve the loss of life. It's a vision of a message of hope centered on justice, which we need in times of injustice. It's a vision of a marriage, of a God who loves us so much that he calls us his own. And it's a vision of a meal, a meal where we celebrate intimate union with Christ our Savior. Turn back to our passage. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. Last week, our passage mentioned this multitude. It gave it a number, 144,000. Well, my wife Mimi is the math teacher, but I think she can confirm David's math from last week. 12 times 12 times a big number, 144,000. 12 
tribes of Israel signifying God's people of the past, 12 apostles signifying those who follow Christ into the future, all of the multitude in heaven representing all of God's servants. We can have hope because God says that he will save his servants from the troubles of the present age. That was true for John's original audience with whom he shared this vision. It is true for us. And the proof is this multitude that God saves. That while there are those who felt like Jesus, like we are lambs being led to the slaughter, there is a lamb who was slaughtered so that we might have hope in life beyond the grave. So we have a multitude. It's a crowd and it is loud. John describes it like the roar of water. If you've ever been to Niagara Falls, you can picture that thundering roar of the water crashing on the rocks. Maybe here in Alexandria, you're thinking about the crashing of the thunderstorms of this last week. That type of reverberating sound. But what is it that they are crying out? What are they yelling about? What is all the commotion? Let's take a look at what their message is. In times of tragedy, I think it is common for us to borrow from the words of others. We borrow because we oftentimes don't have the words ourselves. So we repost others' thoughts. We pray the prayers of those who have gone before us. We copy and paste calls to action. Because sometimes in the midst of tragedy, it is hard to find the right words. Our passage actually has a borrowed word itself. It's the word hallelujah. It's Greek borrowing from the Hebrew. Hebrew verb hallel meaning praise. Yah as in Yahweh meaning God. Praise God. Greek language borrowed it from the Hebrew because they thought there is no better word than this to describe what we're trying to articulate. But why are they praising God? If you were here last week or the week before or have read Revelation before, you know that chapter 19 comes after several chapters of a vision describing the powerful, frightening destruction of evil and the devil. They are the hard chapters of Revelation. There's a reason that while your rector did not preach the first three sermons of the series, he preached the last two hard ones. After this prolonged reflection on evil, of things done and of things left undone, the multitude praises God. It is not just one Susie Sunshine saint in the pews, it is all of them. The nouns and verbs are plural. They are all praising God, the multitude, the elders, the living creatures, all his servants. Jesus is on the throne and all are crying out, Amen. Hallelujah. Amen is another borrowed word. It means I agree. But still, why are they praising God? In a single word, justice. Look at the end of verse 1 and verse 2. They are praising God because the God of salvation and glory and power is a God of justice. 
In our passage, we read that he has judged the symbol of evil and immortality in John's age, referred to in the symbolic term, the great prostitute. Now, ironically, the superpower of John's age called itself eternal Rome. It's ironic because God tells us that his judgment, that his justice will be eternal. It will be forever, like the smoke that goes up forever. Finally, there will be a time when there's justice. And so we can say, amen, let it be so. Previously in Revelation, there has been an echo that's reverberated in the context of suffering and injustice. It's best articulated in chapter six, where we hear the multitude, the same multitude cry out to God. And they cry out, how long will you not judge? I bet a thought or a prayer like that has been on your heart or your lips this week. When we cry out at injustice, at the horror of violence, the tragedy of lost life. We probably feel this week that our narrative of justice is more like the injustice we read about in books like To Kill a Mockingbird, where justice is more a mockery than anything. You might be familiar with the book Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. It tells a very different narrative about justice. It's a story of Walter McMillan, a man who was wrongfully convicted and was condemned and on death row for a crime that he didn't commit. And in the stirring final scene, we see his family standing in the back of the courtroom, the courtroom where they probably weren't even allowed to sit, collectively holding their breath, wondering if there would be justice. The camera pans in the movie version to the judge, and we hear her say these simple words, all charges are dismissed. The family lets out a sigh of relief, of cries, screams of joy, and celebration. This is the type of celebration that comes in Revelation 19. It's a courtroom type of celebration. To celebration that justice will come, that there will be hope despite the pain, that there will be wholeness, that there will be righteousness. In Revelation 19, the rejoicing is actually primarily directed at two things. It's rejoicing because of justice, and it's rejoicing because of righteousness. These words, most commonly used in Hebrew as two words, in the New Testament, when it talks of righteousness and justice, it's usually a single word, because these two things are two sides of the same coin. God's justice and his righteous love for his people go hand in hand. And the image that Revelation 19 uses to describe this love that binds us together with a righteous God is that of a marriage. It is Christ uniting himself in wholeness and righteousness to his people, to his church, to his bride. Mimi and I just received a wedding invitation yesterday from a neighbor. Now, most invitations beneath all of the, you know, the 
tissue and the frills and the bows and the lace, they contain the important details that you need to know. Who's invited? Where is it? When is it? Check which box you want to eat. Look at our passage. Who is invited to the marriage of the Lamb that it describes in verse 9? If you call Jesus your Savior, you are. Not if your parents follow Jesus, you are. But if you call Jesus your, fav- your Savior, you are. And because of this, our passage said, you will be blessed. You'll note that most of the verbs here just give a statement. Blessed. Doesn't say that you will in some distant, far-off future, but now God will meet you in some way. And I know that seems discordant in a week like this. So that's who's invited. What are you supposed to wear? Well, there's one thing that you and I are supposed to almost never wear to a wedding. What color is that? White. You're not supposed to wear white so that you don't upstage the bride, but great news. You're to wear white to this wedding because you plural, are the bride. White symbolizes purity and righteousness in Scripture. And that's the symbolism behind these white robes. This is not some holier-than-thou attire. If you look closely, you'll see that underneath is black. The white of righteousness covers over the black, the darkness of sin that is in all of us. Look at verse 8, where it describes these clothes. It says, it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen. It was granted to her. It's a passive verb. It means that we were given by Christ our white clothes. We were given our righteousness. It is Christ who covers over our sin. It is Christ who enables us to live into the righteous deeds that are described. So that's what we're to wear. What about the when and the where of this marriage? Now, a marriage, both in scripture and otherwise, is a symbol of newness, of a new life, a oneness. It's a picture in scripture of perfection, of God united with his people. And it will come after this, according to our passage. We don't experience it in our fullness now. And if we're honest, even about our own marriages, we would say that we don't experience the fullness of what God intends for marriage here and now in our own marriages. Keep in mind that scripture holds out this image and that we hope here on earth that we are able to reflect it. The metaphor goes that direction, not the other way around. It will be after this present age. It will be after the hurt and the tears. It will be when Christ returns and we are finally united in an intimate, lasting relationship with God. Isaiah 25, which is likely the text that our song of praise was based on, uses these words describing this marriage. He will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. 
Now, I don't know what's on the heavenly menu, but I can guarantee it's better than either box that you might check on the wedding invitation. Does anyone else check both boxes just to see what will happen? Does anyone else hope that that table for eight has somebody who couldn't attend and the extra plate shows up? The marriage supper of the Lamb. Think about the meals that you see in scripture. From the early pages of Genesis, we see the eating of the tree of life in the presence of God. In the story of Abraham, we have uh, the, the description of a meal shared with God's messengers, angels. We see Moses feasting with the elders in Exodus 24 in the presence of God. We hear Isaiah talking about this feast. We hear Jesus speaking of the heavenly banquet. We see Jesus sharing meals with his disciples, the upper room before he goes to the cross, Emmaus after he is risen. And we are invited. First, we're invited together, all of us, because the church is the one getting married. But secondly, you are invited individually. Think about what you do when you receive a wedding invitation, or really any invitation. Chances are you don't do what John does. Look back at our passage. What does John do when he receives this invitation? I fell down at his feet, the angel, to worship him. Do you worship your mailman? No. An invitation doesn't mean that you worship the messenger. An invitation means that you respond to the one who invited you. An RSVP. And the invitation is for you, which means that it's not up to your parent to RSVP. It's not up to your neighbor, your spouse. It's up to you. And so if you've never considered God's personal invitation to you, I'd encourage you, consider that today. In the midst of a really hard week, there is a God who wants to hold out the testimony of hope to you. To those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. I encourage you, accept that invitation. Say yes to a God who holds out hope in the midst of this present age and all of the suffering and darkness we experience. I mentioned that the word hallelujah is a borrowed word. There's another borrowed word that I learned a few years ago that's been on my mind this week. I learned it from, uh, some of you might remember, a band called Lowland Hum, who played for us a couple years ago, an indie folk band from Charlottesville. They're friends of mine, they're, they're deep and thoughtful Christian thinkers, and they wrote a song that had a word in it that I didn't know, and so I asked them about it. The word is saudade. I'm probably mispronouncing it, it's Portuguese. And I took only a year of high school Spanish, which means that I'm probably way off. Saudade. It means an intense longing or yearning for something that is absent or for something that you've never known. We feel grief, lament, anger. We long for something other than what we've experienced this week. We long for another world. It's easier for us to cry along with Revelation 6, how long, than it is to cry hallelujah at times. 
And so we turn to the words of scripture for hope. We turn to the vision of Revelation 19. We're reminded that salvation and glory and power and justice do belong to our God. And we're reminded that after this, we will rejoice. That we have a God who promises to save a multitude. In the face of death, a God who will save. We have a God who promises to bring justice. A God who promises to unite himself to his people in love. And a God who has given us a simple meal as a reminder of his saving action now and a promise of his saving action in the future. Let us end by simply praying the words from the song that we sang already. Lord God, when our hearts are filled with heaviness, may we know the truth of your promises, that we will feast in the house of Zion, that we will sing with our hearts restored. He has done great things we will say together. We will feast and weep no more. Amen.